Hello, and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, or on one of our much-loved radio syndicate partners, or on the Green Majority podcast. Coronavirus numbers are still rising around the world, particularly in the country we rely on for an overwhelming amount of our economic activity. This country is just south of us, and its president does not care about the pandemic, has recently been bragging about being able to differentiate a snake and an elephant, thinks of his entire job as a television show, has begun sending in secret police to snatch people up off the streets for protesting police brutality and racism, and might not even agree to leave office, if he loses the election this November, to a man less awful, but probably just as senile. And who knows if Canada would have the gumption to stand up to the U.S. if it were to become outrightly dictatorial. Who knows if we'll ever even stand up to Jeff Bezos, who has made vertiginously nauseating amounts of money while treating his workers like crap during a pandemic that has ruined so much, and with whom our government has recently signed lucrative contracts. It is, of course our human destiny to succeed, even if our institutions fail and our biosphere turns hostile from the way we've been trashing it for a century and a half. Or rather, the way those of us with a lot of money have been trashing it, and not just the people running the factories and selling the cars and riding the planes. The wealthiest people pollute and produce almost 25% more greenhouse gases than poorer people just by sitting in their big homes and going about their totally normal days, at least in the U.S. But it's not hard to imagine it holding true right across the quote-unquote developed world. Then there's the ever-expanding U.S. military, which has tanks ready to fly into battle in a matter of minutes, spewing noxious gases into the atmosphere and accelerating our planetary doom, let alone the human beings they kill directly, with their extraordinarily high-tech weapons. Again, Canada is heavily reliant upon an insane and spiraling country. A federal judge, at least, has recently prevented the Trump administration from letting fossil fuel operations release unlimited amounts of methane, but that same administration has just recently attacked the very foundations of environmental conservation law in the U.S., by gutting the National Environmental Policy Act to streamline a whole bunch of fossil fuel infrastructure and possibly exempt certain projects like highways from undergoing any environmental assessment at all. If Martin Durbin, president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Global Energy Institute, is right when he says the move is about the U.S., quote, maintaining its global competitiveness, then he must mean these countries are simply competing with each other over how fast we can wreck our only home. Some environmentalists are certain that the law will die in the courts, and so it's only giving more business to lawyers and wasting everyone else's time, while others are certain that if Democrats win big in November, they will overturn this rule immediately. The coronavirus pandemic, meanwhile, which the Trump administration has consistently chosen to worsen, is causing a huge drop in public transit revenues. The annual flooding in northeast India and Nepal this year is some of the worst it's ever been, which is probably linked to climate change, 
While the brutal heat wave in Siberia this year is definitely linked to climate change, as scientists have declared anthropogenic warming to have made it 600 times more likely to occur. In other terms, human pollution has turned this once-in-80-millennia event into a once-in-a-century event, and this kind of Arctic heat is happening at least 70 years earlier than climate scientists had predicted. As snow and ice scientist Walter Mayer told the Washington Post, quote, I don't think anyone expected these changes to happen as fast as we are seeing them happen. The white snow and ice melting earlier in the season means that the Arctic Ocean stops reflecting sunlight earlier in the season, which further warms the waters and dries the land, which then tends to catch a hotter fire, sending more carbon into the atmosphere and spiraling the cycle towards irreversible catastrophe. Some of the recent Siberian wildfires are dubbed zombies because they keep embers under the ice uh, through the winter and spark again in the spring. Alpine researcher Merit Turetsky, in the same Washington Post article, said of the Siberian heat, quote, When we develop a fever, it's a sign. Speaking of signs, the vast methane reserves lingering under the seabed around Antarctica have now begun to leak into the atmosphere, as the microbes that usually consume the gas before it leaves the ocean have dwindled in numbers. And finally, here in Canada, three Nakoda First Nations in Saskatchewan, Mosquito, Grizzly Bearhead, and Lean Man, which amalgamated in 1949, are expecting to be compensated for a 115-year-old land theft by Canada to the tune of $100 million. Soon we will be uh, discussing Canadian coal, new federal environmental assessment rules, Canada's per capita emissions, and more with Stefan and Lauren. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I read blogs by scientists and I believe they know more than we are being told by the mainstream media sources want the truth to hold its horses so there isn't mass hysteria as the seafloor erodes. And we are now going to look at the Vista coal mine. So the massive Vista coal mine in Midwestern Alberta that is planning an expansion to possibly double its output, might now be gaining greater federal scrutiny because Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson is considering changing his mind about leaving the feds out of the process. The U.S.-owned mine started producing thermal coal for overseas export around a year ago and then planned a huge expansion. Wilkinson said in December the federal government would leave itself out of the approvals process for that expansion. Now he's reconsidering, possibly because he's realized the hypocrisy of Canada lobbying other countries to stop burning the very coal we're supplying to the global market, or conceivably he's become gradually more disgruntled as this pandemic wears on about the finagling the company did to stay just under the threshold of automatic federal review, or maybe, as David J. Klimenhaga opines, his decision has something to do with Jason Kenney and Stephen Harper's old climate-denying campaign manager, John Weissenberger, uh, becoming one of the heads of the Alberta Energy Regulator, which is the entity that would have the final say over the expansion if the feds did nothing. The second point about the company craftily dodging envi federal environmental review 
is made because even though the expansion would produce over six times the amount of coal required to trigger an automatic assessment, the company altered the area of the expansion, which allowed it to appear just small enough in size to ultimately avoid the review. If it were a new separate mine rather than an expansion, it would have, the, it would have to have a federal environmental review, but since it's an expansion, it's up to Wilkinson to decide. As Sharon J. Riley pointed out in the Narwhal back in March, Canada has committed to stop burning coal for electricity by 2030, but we might continue mining it so long as there's someone to sell it to. Although it isn't clear that this particular product will be all that profitable through the 10-year lifespan of the Vista mine. Riley quotes energy finance analyst Clark Williams Derry as saying of the 60% jump in coal prices from 2016 to 2018, quote, in any commodity industry, when you go through a boom and bust cycle, everybody gets excited in the boom and everybody overinvests during the boom. They lock themselves in. He also said, quote, it's hard to make a profit from shipping rocks halfway around the world. The carbon pollution from the mine alone will be 220,000 tons per year, and then the eventual burning of the coal would create between 22 and 33 million tons of emissions per year. Wilkinson might also be reconsidering having a federal environmental assessment for the expansion because of the concern he received last week in writing from 47 organizations, whether religious, indigenous, health, or environmental. In any case, his spokeswoman Moira Kelly told Global News that their office would be making a new decision by the end of July, and that, quote, we have also launched a strategic assessment on thermal coal to, be to better understand the potential impact of thermal coal mining activity to ensure effects within federal jurisdiction, especially related to climate change, are fully considered in the federal impact assessment process. Yeah, uh, so I have a couple thoughts, but I want to go to you uh, first, Lauren. Yeah. Um, full disclosure, this isn't a project I had known a lot about up until a couple weeks ago. I hadn't even really heard it discussed that much. Um, so I feel like I learned a lot in just like the like the small amount of reading that I've done over the last few days. Um, first thing I want to get off the table, just <laughs> I almost feel like I'm going to do a bit of a like, here are questions I had and here are how I, and, and this is how I answered them. The first question I had, because I haven't been in a course studying energy systems or anything like that since like university several years ago. But when we say thermal coal, we're referring specifically to coal that is being mined for energy production. Um, there are other kinds of coal that are used for, um, metallurgy and stuff like that. But uh, this is a thermal coal mine. So that means the coal that is being mined is being used specifically for energy production. Um, and you might have a question like I had, I thought we were supposed to be entirely off of coal by 2030. This is true. That does not mean we cannot mine coal and export it to other countries who will then burn it. Specifically, when we're looking at the Vista coal mine, we're looking at mining the coal and then shipping it by rail to BC, at which point it will be shipped overseas to primarily China, Japan, and Korea. Um, and then my other question was, why doesn't it require a federal assessment? Why does uh, Wilkinson get to make this decision? And basically, um, the decision was made back in the wintertime. Uh, initially, Wilkinson decided that he wasn't going to conduct an assessment. And... Um, that was because under the new sort of assessment laws, um, they an assessment is only triggered for an expansion for an expansion project if there's an expansion of over fifty percent um, in terms of like 
like land it covers or like volume, I think. Um, and then if there is at least a 5,000 metric ton per day increase in total coal production. Um, this project automatically goes over that total coal production per day. It's not, it's not just expanding or it's not just emitting an additional 5,000 metric tons. It's, it's emitting or uh, rather mining, sorry, an additional 37,000 metric tons of coal per day. Um, and uh, like was mentioned earlier, it was tweaked during uh, its initial submission for assessment so that it would fall just under that 50% expansion threshold. Um, they tweaked, it so it's 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 instead of a 50% expansion it's between 42.7 and 49.4% expansion so it slid under that threshold requiring um, a federal review and that's why Wilkinson initially determined that he didn't need to conduct one and then in the last few months as a result of a lot of um, sort of activism and lobbying and really great work from people and potentially some of the reasons that that David listed earlier, he he is now reconsidering that stance. So that is why we are seeing this project being discussed again, which is really great because I think when it initially sort of slid by in, I can't even remember, January, February, March, people weren't really primed to be paying attention to this issue. So now we're sort of, we're getting a second chance at, at fighting this, which is really neat. This reminds me actually a lot of two different stories that have sort of, that have sort of, held on to over the years that we've covered in different times. The first was, I believe this has now stopped, but I could be wrong and may still be going. So if you do know, please let me know. The, the how, For how long Quebec was still mining asbestos and selling it overseas after we had basically banned asbestos, uh, you know, and we knew it was harmful, and yet we were still deciding to profit off it ourselves through the sale, you know, into international markets where they had not yet banned asbestos, despite all of our significant, well-known concerns regarding asbestos. And and the second one actually is, I think we covered this maybe a year or two ago about the petroleum coke that uh, that the co- that the Koch brothers owned in Windsor, which also was so dirty they had banned they had banned burning it in the states. But again, they were sort of shipping it out uh, to to other nations where they did not have regulations uh, to to stop this because it's basically that's like a it's a it's a byproduct of the tar sands, which is like super super dirty, uh, and they were able to still sell it on some sort of market. And both of these instances are this example of the government. The, our own domestic government knowing that this is bad and, and deciding to, to not do it, and yet deciding that we are still able, we still want to profit off this, despite the clear and well-known harm that it is causing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're we're likely going to get into it in the next couple sort of stories we cover, but like this mine being operational and being expanded over the next several years, it's, it's expected to have something like a 10 year lifespan, um, is the reason that we really, and I know we talk about this all the time, but we need to start, um, accounting for downstream emissions in, in, in assessments, in, uh, the information that companies are required to put forward and, and in our own sort of, um, carbon accounting as a nation. We don't include downstream emissions a lot of the time. This is an example when downstream emissions wouldn't be wouldn't be calculated under like sort of like our national carbon budget or our national carbon targets. And it's unfair. <laughs> it's yeah. the only way I can put it. In like the plainest of terms, that's not fair for us to be producing something, sending it overseas and then wiping our hands clean of it and being like, oh nope, that's that's actually that's not our fault. 
Yeah, and it well, yeah. There's let's actually just throw to Dave to have that short little bit about the impact rules because I do want to come back to this because I think it's it's key. So the Canadian press is reporting that Canada's new rules for assessing the environmental impact of mines, power plants, pipelines, and railways include concern about a given product's uh, project's effect on climate change, but only insofar as the project produces emissions within our borders, and not, for instance, if it transports fossil fuels to be burned in other countries. The new rule also says nothing about a project being in line with Canada's 2030 climate goals, and they only require projects that will be operating after 2050 to have net zero plans, meaning that their net zero rules uh, for new projects would not apply to something like the Vista coal mine expansion, even if it were to keep running right up until 2049. Yeah, and this, to get back to, to what Lauren uh, was mentioning and obviously connected to this as well, this is exactly where you have to start uh, being quite critical of developed nations, you know, claiming that they are going to go "quote unquote" net zero or or reduce their own emissions by by whatever, honestly, any targets they give you whatsoever. Because so far, to my knowledge, no nation has decided to take responsibility for emissions that are caused by their economy other places. You know, when you hear the scapegoating of of especially China. Uh, in regards to emissions, that is 100% caused by demand from, you know, from nations like Canada. You know, when whenever you hear someone in Canada say that you should not care uh, about Canadians' emissions because of China, because of rising Chinese emissions or because China's emissions dwarf ours by such a significant amount, you have to understand that not only are we sending the coal that they are burning to run their factories, we are then buying the stuff their factories are making and so we are responsible for both sides of those emissions and yet we since it doesn't happen in our country we are washing our hands and claiming that we are totally fine which is you know the moment you think about critically about this that that whole argument falls apart yeah yeah so uh specifically with vista um for instance i think it's something like it only it only generates uh, 222,000 tons of uh, greenhouse gases a year from its operation. But all of the coal that it then produces, that is is then burned overseas, contributes an additional 22 to 33 million metric tons a year. So so yeah, that's an example of of a case where the actual in-house emissions maybe aren't that high, but but those downstream or offshore emissions as a result are really high. Um, and, and just sort of going back to, to the strategic assessment that, that David was just telling us about or the impact assessment. So that is um, the new uh, Canadian strategic assessment on climate change, which was released, I think, like six day, six to seven days, about a week ago, basically. Um, and from what I understand, I obviously I have not read the whole thing. I read like the executive summary at the beginning of it. But basically, um, it's it's a part of, of our new impact assessment act. Um, it describes sort of the greenhouse gas information and climate change information that that project proponents need to submit um, at the assessment phase and then at at each subsequent assessment phase to allow us to sort of get an idea of um, the the climate impact of a given project or or the estimated climate impact of a given project. Um, And and honestly, so far, the the amount that I have seen written on it, which isn't much yet, because I think people are just trying to wrap their brains around it, um, is is that it's it's quite negative. People are quite disappointed with it. People are happy that that this document exists at a base level, but it's the idea that uh, right now it's, it's only sort of requiring 
proponents of new projects to to sort of submit information as it pertains to projects that extend beyond the 20 not not only for projects that extend beyond the 2050 period but like if if i were to have a project and it were to extend its lifetime beyond 2050 um then i need to account for how it gets to net zero by 2050 so it doesn't it, it means that i don't have to account for how my project might fit into the 2030 timeline or any subsequent uh carbon target that that the feds might set um and that that again we you've talked about it so much um, stuff and that I that idea of net zero by 2050 and how we can get into really really creative accounting in order to have a given country or a given project qualify technically as net zero by 2050 basically using um yeah yeah it's 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 clever accounting it's it's relying on potential technologies that may one day exist and be able to be scaled up in order to sequester carbon all kinds of all kinds of clever things that result in a lack of actual reduction. Yeah, well, in the the most the most clear one in the Canadian example is is how Canada over years has been trying to get the international community to accept that all our forests count as sinks, so that we can consider ourselves net zero, quote unquote, because of all of the forests we have uh, and all the actual in all the land, despite the fact that our emissions, you know, remain some of the highest in. Uh, you know, in the world per capita. But, you know, because we happen to have a bunch of empty space, and by empty, I mean, you know, ecosystems that are full of life and in providing ecosystem services, you know, we are, we are then allowed to pretend that we are not actually doing all the terrible things that we are. And, you know, that's a, a whole, yeah, again, we should eventually have a show on net zero because it will drive me nuts. But uh, let's, <laughs> but I think time. we need to like set a date mm. and like, commit to it. We're going to say yes. this date, we're going to do net zero because otherwise we're just going to keep pushing it off. That's a good point. It's a good point. We will find a time very soon. Uh, Dave, energy. So energy policy tracker has been keeping track of each G20 country's energy investments since the start of the COVID pandemic and has found that Canada has so far spent around $12 billion to support fossil fuel energy and $1.5 billion for clean energy. That's $319 per Canadian on fossil fuels and $41 per Canadian on green alternatives. Germany has spent $17 billion on fossil fuels and $27 billion on green energy, while France has spent equal amounts on both. Most G20 countries have not spent much money on their energy sectors since the start of the pandemic, but compared with the countries that have, Canada has spent quite a lot on fossil fuels, as has the United States, while China and the UK have spent the most proportionally on green energy. Canada is also, according to calculations from the World Bank, the third highest emitter per capita in the world. But as Barry Saxifrage points out for the National Observer, a statistical review from BP shows that Canada is actually at the top, and we burn more fossil fuels per person now than we did in 1990 while the U.S., the EU, and the U.K. have all decreased their per capita emissions by double digits in that time. So for all the people who say that Canada represents a negligible fraction of global emissions, each one of us is on average emitting more carbon pollution than 99% of the species. Of course, if you look at the purported 37% drop in per capita emissions from the U.K., for instance, the number could be deceiving because emissions are occurring in other countries to make products that serve the British, so they're responsible for emissions that they're not not including in their accounting. Yeah, so 
this is this honestly so despite the fact that we had an entire show where i spoke about the amount of support the canadian government has provided to fossil fuel companies during this uh, experience and if you want to see the show go back a couple of weeks uh and, and and check it out i was still surprised by these numbers like it was still worse than i thought and i i, I truly i was like i was i was baffled i truly was yeah um, if people want to like follow along at home, it's, it's this really, really great website that was put together. You can go to energypolicytracker.org and it, it catalogs Canada and, and a bunch of other countries. It's really easy to read. It's really easy to navigate, has like handy graphs and everything. Um, but yeah, I was also really surprised. And, and again, cause I was on the website for a while. I was really surprised. They have this nice little pie chart and you, and you look at the pie chart and you realize that like of the energy of, of when we're looking at sort of COVID response dollars given to energy companies, those numbers were already given to you. Um, but to sort of like make it really easy, the thing that struck me is that a full three quarters of all energy subsidies under COVID recovery efforts are unconditional payouts to the fossil fuel industry. So within that sort of uh, $12 billion of money that goes to the fossil fuel industry, 10.4 billion of them are unconditional dollars and 1.86 billion of those are conditional. So I believe, I believe that would be where that sort of orphan well cleanup program that we were lauding a couple months ago might fall into. I think someone can please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's, that's where that 1.86 billion is going is the conditional dollars to, to orphan well cleanup. Mm. Um, that other 10.4 billion, which is a full three quarters of COVID recovery dollars is unconditional to the fossil fuel industry to do whatever the heck they want with it. Um, and yeah, although I like, I don't know why I was, I'm not, I, I don't know why I was so surprised, but I was so disappointed because I think we consistently sort of hear the liberal government talk such a big game about a recovery for all. And we've heard them use really, really good terms like, oh, we're not looking for shovel ready projects. We're looking for shovel worthy projects and how we're going to do it differently this time. And it's not going to be like the 2008, 2009 recovery. And like, yeah, this maybe isn't bailing out big banks, though, though this is just an energy assessment. So we have no idea how much money they've given to big banks and large corporations. But it's it might not be duplicating that mistake, but we're still sort of seeing a government not taking this opportunity to invest in a recovery effort that allows us to like pivot towards resiliency and all that resiliency means as it cascades through through a society. But like we're continuing to see a government that is instead taking this period of sort of relative political freedom where they're not having to meet with the house the same way. They're allowed to sort of do what they want with money a little bit faster because we're in this period of emergency. And we're seeing this government that's, that's met with CAP, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, more than any other lobbying group across the country, I'm fairly certain. And, and like, this is the effects of it. This is the effects of meeting with the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers and having not free reign in Parliament, but like not having the same parameters and structures in Parliament that we would normally see. And as a result, we're seeing literally tens of billions of dollars, well, not tens, ten of billions of dollars going towards propping up a fossil fuel industry that, that ultimately doesn't benefit most Canadians and doesn't benefit most people worldwide. Um, and yeah, I don't know why I was so surprised, but I'm continuously disappointed. Yeah, I, I, the continual disappointment does appear to be a, a running theme. Um, and, and I will say the one thing I will say about this a little bit, which I think is 
you know, maybe just a thing to to note is that this is specifically talking about money that goes that, that is responsible to energy specifically. And so there are many types of green recovery aspects that may not fall under this type of response, right? Like when we see the the budget or the whatever the response that is meant to be the the recovery bill that we expect to see in September or, or early fall, you know, a lot of that money can go to a lot of projects that would not necessarily fall under in within this tracking system to to then indicate uh, you know, that would still we would still con- well consider being a part of a clean recovery you know like if i hope i don't believe this includes anything about like you know green infrastructure projects like green roofs or uh or transportation and stuff like that that would actually do a lot of good but still is a very important metric if only just to highlight the amount of money we've literally given the fossil fuel industry you know like if you're talking about how much like when the when the conversation shifts, which we're seeing now, to starting to blame people who are on CERB for how much money we're racking up and stuff like that, the you know this is twelve billion dollars that we gave to oil companies that yeah in four months yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah which is a significant amount of money and and goes to show even in that conversation we were having I believe it was last week or the week before around how. We, despite the, all the talk about a just transition, there's still no. Oh, it's in Biden's energy in Biden's climate plan. Despite all of this talk about moving forward on climate, there's still no talk about removing incentives for for fossil fuels. And I think that's a trend that we're seeing here that's very similar, you know, in in, in scope. And um, I will say that if I if, if I could give people a thing to do over the next couple months, it seems like there was a which is an article that I we didn't cover, but I think is quite important. Uh, out of the Globe and Mail about his opinion piece about how the Trudeau government is is now seen as hesitating in regards to having a true response uh, to to climate change during as part of their just recovery or part uh, to actually uh, you know actually move along with the type of recovery that we would call just at least on this show in in that Christia Freeland and Bill Morneau are seen as the two major blockers towards this towards this goal. Uh, and and so if you happen to live in either of their writings, uh, given that you're in Toronto, maybe you want to call those writing the, the, them and inform them that maybe they should shift their position. And in, in the article itself, it talks about how you know the more no, about both of them are seemingly influenced by 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 either fiscal conservatism in Morneau's case or by what Alberta wants. Which in in Freeland's case, which both of them a little bit, I'm sort of like, look, we gave twelve billion dollars to Alberta already. You know, at least not all of it go to Alberta. I'm sorry. I'm sure this some of the money it goes to Newfoundland and Manitoba and you know in BC a little bit, but like, the, and like fossil fuels have gotten a, a good, chunk, good chunk of chain uh, change, and then also that's still twelve million dollars that we've spent. Maybe we can spend some on trying to make the world a better place. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. No, and like that's a great idea, especially because it's like now is a fantastic time to try to set up a meeting with your with your member of parliament. Um, I'm somebody who does government relations work uh, as as part of my job, and the number of times I will email an MP and they'll be like, "Oh." Will any of my constituents be in that meeting? Because if not, then I can't take it. So if you are Christia Freeland's constituent, if you are Bill Morneau's constituent, act, it doesn't matter whose constituent you are, ask to have a meeting with them because they will, in all likelihood, take it. 
because at this point, a meeting is a 20 minute Zoom call. So you're really, you're, you're not requiring all that much of them. You're requiring 20 minutes of their time. So, so go for it. Yeah. And they don't even have to be going for the fences, baby. Like, yeah, they don't, and they don't, they don't have to even be in the same city. They can be, they can be doing whatever they want. Yep. Um, but yeah, so, and, and this is, I think, I, I think that, that sort of brought me back, I think a little bit, uh, Back to my more cynical self, I guess. I was I was relatively a little bit more hopeful about the concept of just recovery here in Canada uh, until I sort of saw these numbers and I was like, "Well, this is this is unfortunate," uh, you know. And it, and, it, and this plus that other article really seems to make me believe that, you know, the the tide that I, the momentum that we were feeling I feel like has has been lost a little bit over over the amount of time we've been waiting and. If if we're going to see a truly transformative response, we're going to need uh, a push leading into the fall, and so and so this is the yeah so this is a great time to to you know to talk to your elected official and to do whatever you can in regards to pushing this forward because if not now when really absolutely and I mean like it's it. <sighs> It's a great time to meet up with friends who are interested in issues like this and try to organize together. I, I was talking to a bunch of young people, uh, high school students, a couple weeks ago about climate action and activism. And one of them asked me, they like point blank, they were like, hey, like I suffer from climate anxiety a lot. My, my, my loved ones, my brother has a lot of anxiety around climate change and depression and stuff like that. What can we do? And obviously like I'm not, I'm not a health professional. I'm not, I'm not necessarily like equipped to, to give in-depth m- mental health care. But what I was able to say is that like from my own experience and from what I have read, the best sort of salve for climate anxiety, and and it's understandable to have that right now, is engaging in your community in some way to try to further the cause of climate action. Um, it's, It's one of the best things you can do for your own mental health. It's one of the best things you can do in terms of like actually like bettering our odds as a species. Um, and yeah, and it can be as simple as calling up your MP. Trumpet tells you heard at infinitum. And before I just get to these last two stories here from our contributor Christopher Moray, Stefan wanted to mention a couple of things that happened today. Well, today, the twenty yes. second of July. So We'll cover at least one of these stories probably a little bit more in depth in in the future, but there are two good news stories uh, a little bit today, and so I want to cover them because of their importance. First is that Zurich Insurance Group AG has decided not to renew uh, cover for the federal government's Trans Mountain oil pipeline. The the pipeline itself, the pipeline company, does not seem to be too worried that they won't find another insurance company. However, We've seen this trend of insurance companies who are particularly at risk from climate change because of that, you know, more volatility it actually costs insurance companies more. We're seeing them take more and uh, aggressive stances against things like this. And so this is important to note. Uh, they were actually the, they were providing a type of insurance that was at that the first eight million dollars of insurance would have come from them. And so they they have pulled out and. You know, it's a blow. It's not a huge blow, but it's a a, a little bit of good news. Uh, a bigger news story, and, and and significantly better news, I would say, is that today also a federal court justice has declared that the safe third party third country agreement 
which is Canada's asylum asylum agreement in the United States, infringes upon the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and has given the federal government six months to respond. And we have talked about this previously on the show. This is the agreement that basically Canada and the States has that says if you land in one of these countries and you try to declare uh, refugee status in one of the other countries, you can't because they think you should declare it in your own, in the in the first country that you that you land in. So this has provided uh, Canadian government a lot of cover as a ways to reject and send uh, different refugee claimants back because they've landed in the states first, only to try to get into Canada. And so you know this is super important from a especially from a climate refugee standpoint. That, you know, in the fight towards trying to ensure that these people are taken care of, this is a big win, uh, and hopefully it it leads to the end of this uh, quite brutal law. Uh, But let's go on to the Christopher stories. So Chris has provided for us uh, another story on Alberta Cole. He writes, last month on June 1st, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney tossed out the province's 44-year-old policy limiting coal mining in the Rocky Mountains. Following a series of fly-by-night legislative moves, removing fetters on industrial development, this latest shows just how desperate Kenny is to bring jobs into the region, which faces an ongoing economic crisis stemming from its dependency on high oil prices. Unfortunately, writes Chris, the only way Kenny knows how to make money for his province is to dig more holes in the ground. In an excellent feature for CBC, Robson Fletcher, uh, Drew Anderson, and Jordan Omstead explain the context of the decision and why environmentalists and sane humans should worry. Prior to the discovery of oil in Leduc in 1947, Alberta was the land of coal mines, uh, counting 2,342 by 1975. However, in a fit of good sense, the conservative Lougheed Lougheed government uh, decided that Alberta was making enough money off of oil revenues that they could afford to protect the environment by heavily restricting new coal mine leases, particularly open pit mining in the still relatively pristine Rocky Mountain region, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site of unrivaled beauty, beauty, biodiversity, containing, uh, quote, one of the most significant fossil areas in the world, the Burgess Shale Formation. Despite the policy, Alberta still relies heavily on coal for power generation, unlike in B.C., where the coal is shipped to China, mainly to fuel steel production. It seems Alberta is hoping to get in on B.C.'s coal export game, which netted $6.7 billion in 2019. Though the province is tight-lipped about the implication of the new policy, the main cause for concern is the removal of restrictions on open-pit mining for vast areas of the Rocky Mountains and the surrounding foothills. While Energy Minister Sonia Savage tweeted, quote, We will continue to protect environmentally sensitive and recreational lands along Alberta's eastern slopes while addressing the continued and growing demand for high-quality metallurgical coal, of the steelmaking variety. This is far from reassuring for those who, who see these as fundamentally contradictory goals. Yeah, so actually this is a good example of the other type of, one of the other types of coal that you know, thermal coal was mentioned uh, by Lauren in the earlier segment, and this is specifically metallurgic coal, which is used to make steel, and, and more commonly in that, in that variety, which still 
creates our emissions. Like the use of it still does not entirely change anything. Maybe one of the, the slight difference between the two is that if you're using it to make steel, there are fewer clean options than than coal for 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 energy. There's many, many options for, for coal for energy. But but still I don't see how anyone can can trust the Kenny government to protect the environment at this point. They, any sort of work on that front, I think he's thrown out the window time and time again. So finally, Chris gives us another piece. Uh, the Guardian reported a few weeks ago that the International Finance Corporation, a branch of the World Bank, has provided billions in funding for the production of commercial feedlots and industrial livestock operations in developing nations, including Ethiopia, Niger, and Uganda. Though the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, is nominally supposed to be helping promote economic growth in these countries, the bulk of the funding is going to global conglomerates, companies like Smithfield Foods, world's largest producer of pork products, and recently in the news for mass outbreaks of coronavirus in its facilities. As Andrew Wasley and Alexandra Heal report, Smith, Smithfield received, quote, a substantial cash injection from the IFC for its activities in Romania. The largest part of the IFC funding, which counts the U.S. and U.K. as major creditors, has gone to meat processing plants. These are slaughterhouses. Setting aside the dubious economic benefits of building industrial slaughterhouses owned by tax-evading transnational corporations in poor countries, animal farming is a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, as much as 15% of total global emissions. To make matters worse, the World Bank is touting animal farming as a measure for improving food security, even though it does the opposite. Animal farming is extremely energy and land intensive, using 80% of the world's farmland, yet only 18%, accounting for only 18% of global calories. In addition, meat products are costlier to purchase and will likely be exported out of those countries to the highest bidder, rather than benefiting the diets of Ethiopians or Ugandans. Tellingly, on the World Bank website's page addressing climate change, its key focus areas are, quote, adaptation and resilience, climate finance, and ambitious climate action. One word that isn't to be found in any of their promotional materials is mitigation. Yeah, so this is actually something I think that has come up more and more with the the spread of COVID-19, which is the push and under deepen understanding uh, of individuals connections to su- supply lines and, and where they get their food from and the need to, to try to reduce uh, the so you know the amount of food they're getting from from overseas and in farther away places to to more local and uh, sustainable oppor- opportunities to to eat and part of it is this kind of thing like what's not mentioned here exactly directly but one of the major reasons why it, it, it is such a huge part of uh, emissions is because of the amount of deforestation that is required to provide land for the grazing of these of these animals, you know, especially beef. You know, if you want to look at one of the massive reasons why Brazil has been cutting down its rainforest, it is for cattle. You know, it's to raise cattle and, and, to, and to have them be eating the, you know, eating grass instead of like, cattle cannot live in rainforests. Perhaps that should, should not be surprising. 
So there are a couple different places you could take uh, the, this story, you know, whether or not it is the fact that international development is sort of once again hiding behind that sort of phrase to you know basically exploit these nations. But the one piece I want to hammer home is sort of how we started this episode, which is a conversation about how developed nations, quote unquote, like Canada, can hide their emissions by exporting the the emissions or the or the the type of emissions. In this case, a lot of it is deforestation uh, caused by our own consumption and then not count them when we sort of ship the goods, you know, in this case, meat back to ourselves. You know, this is exactly the way we can do this, whether or not we send we send coal overseas and then we take meat here and somehow manage to claim that we are not responsible for either the burning of coal that occurs overseas or the deforestation that is caused by the meat that we consume. And so, you know, the only path forward is, is a full cost accounting that takes all of this into account.